slide. Check, check. All right, turn to John chapter 1. Let's uh, dig into the Word of God tonight. So I just want to welcome everyone to the joint prayer meeting. This is a prayer meeting that uh, New Philly we've been hosting for the last four, five years. Four years, a little over four years and three months. We have been keeping the prayer fire burning. And we get together with people from different English ministries here in the Seoul area to pray for the healing and revival of this peninsula, to pray for the Korean people, to pray for this nation. And uh, we've come a long way. God's been maturing this prayer movement. And what we got going on here, I mean, this is powerful. This is a history shifting what takes place here once a month. It's history shifting. You know, and you might be like, you know, how, how come, you know, there's not more people coming out to pray? It's okay. No. God's not a big fan of the majority. He don't need the majority. He just need a 12. He don't need a lot of yeast, just a little bit. He just needs a little gochujang. He just needs some people that are on fire for Jesus. The remnant principle is what the kingdom's all about. He just wants those who are fully committed to him to be all in, to pray his heart, and God will move. When we pray, we shift heaven. We move the resources of heaven down here to earth for kingdom purposes. We disallow the works of the enemy from continuing on unmonitored. We do not allow the enemy to run free and with his trespasses, with his acts of destruction. You know, the prayer movement is a mandate that the church really needs to rise up and take hold of. This is the only way you can bring lasting change in any city. is through having a strong prayer movement at your local church, but also at the city-wide level. And so... I want to commend everyone who has been continuing to come out to pray. All right. What we're a part of is something much bigger. Something much bigger. And it's not just us praying here. You know, the more and more I travel around Korea, you know, there is a lot of Koreans that love Jesus. And they are, they're all in. And they, and they pray. And it's not just the cultural early dawn prayer meetings. But there are Koreans that really pray. You know, every year they have this fasting and prayer conference that uh, I got to one time go to after eating a big dinner. (laughs) 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 We're on the way. Uh, My Campus Crusade staff, we we, we ate a big dinner and went to this fasting and prayer conference. And when we went there, man, it was like a humid, like a sauna. And people were just like by the water coolers, like trying to drink and anything they can get because they were so hungry. And many of these college students, about one-third of them, they were duped into coming to the conference. They didn't know it was a fasting conference. <laughs> you know how Koreans are sometimes? You know, they, they, they kind of duped their friends to coming. And, and anyway, they, but 
the organizers of this conference and the people who are really uh, there at that conference every year, man. Uh, it's called the Esther Prayer Movement. I mean, they really pray, and they really pray for unification. And so, you know, we can't take on this attitude like, you know, oh, we're the only few in the entire city of Seoul that prays. No, that's not true. You know, there's a lot of Koreans that are really praying for reunification. They're praying very similarly to how we're praying. When I went down to Daejeon, I got to connect with a, a guy named Pastor David down there, a Korean pastor. He is walking in the spirit of sonship because his father is a pastor. Uh, but it, he's really just got such an honor for his pastor. And I got to go down and speak at a youth prison. It was my first prison ministry in Korea. It's my first prison ministry anywhere. <laughs> but, but, you know, these, 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 were, uh, kid, these are teenagers, like 12, 18 years old. And uh, they were all wearing the same bright neon jackets. Because I guess that's, you know, a lot of them don't have families. So, you know, they get provided for at the prison. And it's kind of like a prison youth detention center, correction center, orphanage kind of thing. And so um, this uh, ministry, Vision Station, they go down there and they hold a conference like twice a year. And they reach out to these children. They love on these children. There's like a, a group of um, yellow vested volunteers from all these de- Korean, different Korean churches from all over Korea. They come and volunteer every, every twice a year, I think. And they were there and they're just loving on the kids, hugging the kids, like forcing these like, you know, these, these big boys that didn't want to be there. And they're just like, you know, making them hug each other and stuff. And... <laughs> But uh, you can tell, man, it was powerful. Like when Myung and I started opening up the altar and we started praying for these kids. You know, it looked like they weren't receiving my message because I was speaking English. Myung was translating. And it was her first time translating one of my messages. So she was just making stuff up as we're going along. <laughs> uh, Myung is one of our uh, pastors. She's, uh, uh, she's our camp, uh, community pastor at our church. Anyway, she was translating for me. And, and, and it looked like the kids weren't receiving it, but when we op- opened up the altar, we started praying for these kids, and they just started crying. Uh, Pastor Myung-hwa led uh, one of the teenagers to Christ right there in the front. And, you know, it's the real deal when these kids do it, because when I try to lead another boy to Christ, he wasn't having it. You know? <laughs> I, I mean, I, and my Korean was flowing, too. I'm pretty sure he understood everything I said. But, uh, you know, he, he, didn't want, he didn't want anything to do with that. But, but they were still crying. When we prayed for them, they were crying. They could sense the love of God. You know, when you, when you bring, when you do ministry under the anointing power of the Holy Spirit, that's real. That touches people. Even if there's a language barrier, right? Our, our, our church, we just sent uh, four teams out to the missions uh, field, Cambodia, Bangladesh, Malaysia, and the Philippines. And in Bangladesh, there's a language barrier. In Malaysia, there's a language barrier. In Cambodia, there's a language barrier. In the Philippines... Some of them speak English, but there was also a language barrier there. And a lot of these uh, times when we pray and prophesy, people don't understand what we're saying. You know, that's why for all the um, Korean natives at uh, New Philadelphia Church, you guys shouldn't be afraid of going on a mission trip. If you go out there and you pray in broken English, it doesn't matter. Because when the anointing power of the Holy Spirit starts to flow, they still sense the presence of God. They still get healed by the loving touch of God. It's a supernatural ministry. It's a supernatural ministry. Now, the understanding helps a lot. Don't, don't get me wrong. But there's always something more than the understanding. It's the, it's the power and the grace of God that's going out to that person who's receiving that prayer. But, um, yeah, what we're part of here, 
It's powerful. This prayer movement, this prayer movement is a powerful movement, and the, and the gates of hell have been opposing it. And you know what? We're going to continue to gather, and we're going to continue to pray, and we're going to continue to host, host uh, prayer meetings like this every month. You know, I believe right now some of the English ministry pastors are talking about doing a joint prayer meeting. <laughs> They're talking about doing a prayer meeting, and so I think it's going to come up in spring. So it's going to be organized by uh, all the EM pastors that we, we, we actually gather once a month on the last Thursday of the month, and we pray. And let me tell you something right now. In the first few prayer meetings for these pastors, prayer meetings, it was a little, it was a little bit you know, dry. It was, it was hard to get things going. But not, nowadays, when we get together every month, you know, pastors are praying. It's powerful. And, you know, and, and for whatever reason... You know, God has really opened up a wonderful relationship between, you know, Pastor David of, of Jubilee and myself, Pastor Doug of Sarang and myself. I'm not that close to Pastor Doug, but we're not, we're pretty, we're cool with each other. Like, he's a cool guy. He's a passionate guy. You know? Yeah. And uh, a good relationship with Pastor Johnny of Third Wave, a good relationship with uh, Pastor Eddie of OEM. And uh, I just met Pastor Paul Song. He's like six foot six. He's like this tall Korean guy from L.A. And uh, one of my friends from Campus Crusade, uh, they're good friends, um, or they knew each other from L.A. So I got to meet him and I uh, ended up treating him for lunch. And uh, he just opened up and, you know, he's a real, he's a real down-to-earth guy. Like, you know, they make him wear a suit there at, at Young Doc every week. But that's cramping his style because that's not, that's not him. So he's like, man, I don't want to wear this suit, you know, but... You know, these pastors, you know, right now, God's doing something that's truly special because you know what? You go to any other city in America, any other city, even in Australia, it's hard to find this type of just being at peace with each other. Because our ministers are so different. We're very different. And, and for those here from the different ministries, you guys know what I'm talking about. We're different. And so the question becomes, you know, how do these how do these ministries ever get along, or how they how, how don't they kind of butt heads sometimes? Don't they have ministry philosophy differences? And the answer is yes, we do. Yes, we do. But yet, God calls the body of Christ to unity. But I believe the unity is achieved in a roundabout way. You know, um, because if you go for just unity directly, it's elusive. But I believe that when we start to really seek God's face in prayer, and that's what's happening with the pastors once a month. That's what we've been, that concept of the joint prayer meeting, we've been keeping it burning here once a month for the last four years. And that's now opening up the dialogue for the pastors. They're like, man, these pastors' prayer meetings are so great. We should open this up for the whole congregation. You know? And, and you, know, you know, honestly, secretly, I go, uh, yeah, we, we've been doing that for the last four years, you know? Why don't you guys come out and pray? But, you know, a lot of them, it's hard for them. It's hard for them because Saturday night, this is a secret your pastors won't tell you, okay? Saturday night, sometimes us, we preachers, we don't have a message Saturday night. (laughs) And so you don't want to be going to a prayer meeting on a Saturday night when you need to preach the next day, the next morning. So I, I sympathize. And I'm like, hey, you know, come out and pray. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'll be there. Yeah, 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 yeah I'll try to come out, you know. But, you know, it's, every, you know, it's, it's common. Every Saturday night comes around, you don't have a message. 
You, you need to have your own prayer meeting at home. You know? Now the, now the, now the cool secret is, the cool secret is, yeah, sometimes I'll come to join prayer meeting and I have, I do not have a message for Sunday. I just don't have a message for the next day. I don't know. I mean, I could p- preach from 10 things or sometimes I could preach, I don't know what I'm going to choose. I got not, no message, but I'm, as I'm praying together with the saints from all the different churches, when I'm praying together here at joint prayer meeting, during those two, three hours, the heavens just open up. And I just start getting like five messages during the joint prayer meeting. See, I should share that testimony with these other English ministry pastors. And I, I, I they'll come out more often. But anyway... God is really stirring on their hearts because uh, we are we're talking about organizing some kind of worship night, joint worship night, joint prayer night. And so it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So I'm really looking forward to that. You know, I'm not I'm not all like, you know, where y'all at? You, know, you should just come to this. You know, I'm not like that. Let me just be honest. Right. I'm not like that. I'm just saying, man, God is working it. He's working things for our good. But it's sometimes it's not the way that we think. You know, and sometimes we just got to embrace the creativity of God. You know, you, I can't get all upset at God like, you know, I didn't think of that. So you shouldn't do it that way. You know, so, you know, God's doing a, a wonderful work. And I believe that it is also the faithfulness of the saints who have been coming out to pray that this grace is overflowing into the pastor's prayer meetings and also into this idea of gathering the wider congregations. Now, you saw at the Christmas service, right? I mean, a Christmas service, uh, AIM service, man, way back in the day was small. You know, maybe like four or 500 people. And now a Christmas service, Good Friday service, you know, you got over 2,000 people at these things. It's hard to find a venue that can accommodate all of us. You know, and, and if the English ministries keep on growing, you know, it's going to, we're going to need even bigger venues, you know. And so these worship nights, these prayer nights that are being spoken and discussed, if you didn't know that, I'm telling you that, that this was happening. When those things take place, it's going to be powerful. You know, your friends, your small group members, you know, your Bible study members that really haven't been able to get back with the Lord or kind of experience the grace of God like you have. You know, as they come out to these types of worship meetings and prayer meetings, they're going to get encountered powerfully. They're going to get encountered powerfully. This is going to overflow. You guys are, a lot of you are already carrying it. And it's meant to overflow. You know, it doesn't have to be all in your face. You know, we just come quietly and we sit and we sing the songs and then we pray and we participate. But the grace of God is just going to overflow. Look with me to John chapter 1 and I'm going to share with you a message that I've been chewing on for many years. And I just decided just to uh, share it tonight. It's a powerful word. John chapter 1. Let's look at verse 14. We're going to look at verse 14 and then we're going to look at verse 16 and 17. I'm going to read in the ESV, so follow along. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is talking about Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In the Greek is pleres kairitos kai eletheas. Full of grace and truth. And look at verse 16 and 17. 
And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, when I was a college student, I was being discipled by a Hispanic Pentecostal pastor named Brother Michael. And he used to always tell me, you know, the law came through Moses. And some churches, they're just so full of this religious legalism. And they're still pounding people with the law and do this and do that and don't do that. And they're using this um, method of religion, you know, uh, this list of do's and don'ts. And when people go astray, you know, they bring a big old stick and they just, you know, they, just, they make God seem like he's just out to whip you with a stick every time you do something wrong. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And he always kind of would repeat that over and over to me. Grace and truth, brother Christian, came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. <laughs> think about that, brother. And, 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 and I did think about it, you know. <laughs> For many years, many years. It's been almost 12 years of thinking about this. <laughs> and tonight I want to talk about this theme, grace and truth. Because some people, you know, in secular culture, there's this saying, honesty is the best policy. And it's also manifested in some, in some people's personality types. Because some people's personality types just tend to be more blunt, you know, and they just say, I just like to be blunt, you know, I just like to keep it real, I just like to tell it like it is, and if you can't handle that, it's too bad, that's the truth though, I don't see the best policy, you know, you don't like it, tough, but you know, I'm just telling you the truth, I'm just trying to help you out, you know, and, and people have this attitude, honesty is the best policy, and for the most part, I embrace that in my heart. Thinking that it came from scripture or something. <laughs> well, why not? It sounds very scriptural, right? Honesty. Be honest. Tell the truth. Do not lie. Doesn't that equate to honesty is the best policy? Right? You shall not lie. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to ever lie. So, you should always be honest. You know? And so, it's really interesting because I thought about it a lot. If you read history... And you read about what Christians had to face throughout history. You're going to have a problem with honesty is the best policy. It's going, to, it's going to get you into a lot of trouble. And a lot of my seminary classmates, when we are discussing it, things with our, past, uh, our professor in ethics class, I noticed that a lot of them don't have very processed uh, logic behind this honesty is the best policy attitude. Because a lot of them have that. They adopt that attitude. And so the, the professor will say, well, all right, what do you think about the, uh, the Holocaust? Uh, what about the Holocaust? You, know, you say honesty is the best policy. You know, you know clearly what the Nazis are doing is wicked and evil. It's not the will of God. And some Jews come to you for refuge in your home. And you give them refuge because you feel so compassionate toward them. And in the middle of the night... The Gestapo, they come. The police, the Nazi police, they come. And then they open up your doors and then they say, we know you're hiding Jews. Tell us where they are. What would you do? 
and these very smart, which I thought were smart, classmates. I won't name who they are. I'll just tell you I don't see them here, so I think it's safe. No, but it's, 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 it's disturbingly common. They say, well, you know, well, you, know I, you still got to tell the truth. And I'm like, all right. I object. You know, I always say, you know, I'll, I, oh, I'll, I actually, I'm trying to stay quiet because um, I have a strong personality. And the prof- not all the professors are fans of me picking up the discussion and running with it. So a lot of times, if I pick up the discussion, there is no discussion. I just, I just start, I just start airing out my opinion. I start preaching, you know. But I, you know, the cool thing is when I do that, my classmates, I feel them saying amen. They're like, they're like, oh, I, wow, amen. Yeah, Christian, yeah. And some of them know I'm a pastor. They're like, oh, Pastor Christian, that's good. Right on. And that gets me going more. <laughs> so I've been, I've been trying to just refrain. I just, I just keep my mouth shut. And I, just, I just listen to see where the discussion will go. So yeah, is honesty the best policy? What would you do? What would you do? Or what if your family is going hungry and you're in debt, but the systems of the economy around you, they're oppressive, they're downright evil. Place like North Korea, some certain countries that are full of corruption, like in some Middle Eastern countries, they're just full of corruption and it's oppressive. What do you do when you, when you, when you, have lost all ability to feed your family. Do you do what Robin Hood did? You know? And so, you know, these are questions of ethics. And so, if you guys love these types of questions, you know, be sure to read ethics books. Uh, a really great one is John Stott's, um, what's the title called? Hey, David on. what's the title called? Did I tell you about the book? Anyway, it's a good ethics book <laughs> written by John Stott. Uh, I can get you a title later. But anyway, we use it in one of our uh, classes, and it's an excellent book. It really goes over a lot of these questions that are not so black and white, you know? But anyway, I like to keep it real. I like to tell it straight up. Well, you don't like me? Then tough. I ain't changing for you. <laughs> Honesty is the best policy. And tonight, I want to talk about, is honesty really the best policy? It is a great summary statement to help you to emphasize avoiding lying. It helps you to avoid lying. But is it really a holistic way to deal with all of the gray areas that you will face in your life? When your Korean boss, your Korean manager... It's starting to have you do things that you feel like, you know, I need to blow the whistle on this. You know, whistleblowing is not a black and white matter. Just because this guy in the tobacco company did it and then they made this great movie called The Insider about it and it exposed all the tobacco company's corruption. That doesn't mean that whistleblowing is always, always black and white. Sometimes you don't know when to. Sometimes it's best not to blow the whistle. You know what I mean? Or, or let's bring it down real, let's re- bring it real close to home. How about in the ministry setting? 
How about in your local church? Uh-oh. You've seen Pastor Christian do some things that you like, oh, I don't know about that. I need to blow the whistle at joint prayer meeting. I'm going to blow the whistle at joint prayer meeting so all the other English ministries will know what my church is going through. You know what I mean? You know, maybe in your, in your immature judgment, it looks wrong, but there's actually good logic behind it. But you can't see it. But you feel like, oh, honestly, best policy. I got to blow this whistle. I got to let the, the elders of Jair Songdo know. I need to let Pastor Eddie know. I need to let Pastor David know about this corruption. They could, they could rebuke him or something. I need to let Pastor Benjamin know. Oh, Pastor Benjamin. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Christian's mentor and spiritual father. Oh, he'll get a real whipping from Pastor Benjamin. <laughs> I know some of y'all think that. <laughs> Don't even lie. Don't even lie. But uh, is, is honesty the best policy? And we're going to look at that today. All right. Well, the Bible says here that Jesus came, the word of God, Jesus became flesh. And when he came, the Bible says he was full of grace and truth. Everybody say grace and truth. Grace and, truth. and from this fullness, the Bible says, like an overflow of this fullness that was on Jesus, we received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I want to talk about these two themes, grace and truth. Let me start with grace. What is grace? You know, I, uh, one of my friends, elder at Jubilee Church, uh, my brother Alex Lim, he came and spoke at New Philly uh, two months ago. And it was a powerful message. He had these PowerPoint slides up. And he had these really great uh, testimonies and Bible passages and quotes and uh, statistical data. I mean, it's, it, was, it was great. I love this message. But one thing he said was, Christians don't have a monopoly on grace. We all think we have a monopoly on grace, but we don't. And therefore, we need to, when we go to work, he was talking about the concept of work. We can't think of work as a curse. We can't think of our nine to five jobs as just a product of the curse from the Garden of Eden. Work has value in it. Why? Because God did work. You know, God could have just snapped his finger and the world would came, came to be. But God took each day and he did something productive. He did something, and, and, he, and he, when he did the work, he called it good. And then he, he, he gave a mandate to the man to subdue the earth, work it. Work it, man. <laughs> work it, son. God gave us that mandate to work. And so work has value in it. And we, have, we as Christians have a lot of misconceptions about work. And, uh, and the grace of God can also manifest through your secular, non-believing boss. And there could be a lot of God's will being done at your secular workplace. But the only lens you're seeing it in is I need to make money from this job and give it to missions trips. And that's the only purpose I have for doing this job is to make money to tithe and give offerings to our mission trips. And that's a very evangelistic view of, of, uh, of work. And now that evangelistic emphasis was a good emphasis because I think with the liberal theology at the turn of the 20th century, that was a good emphasis. We needed to kind of get back to evangelism and missions. But, you know, a lot of evangelical Christianity in America has kind of swung way toward that way. And we've gotten an imbalanced view of work. Because the reformers had a much more balanced view of work. 
they really uh, view that, you know, your work has value and you do it for the glory of God. You know, Martin Luther used to talk about, you know, whether you're a, a chef in the kitchen, a minister at the pulpit or a mother rocking the cradle. You know, you do all of that for the glory of God. All of those callings are sacred before God. There is no secular profession. So one thing Alex said was, we don't have a monopoly. Christians don't have a monopoly on grace, and it's true. I'm going to start with the first concept of grace. Tonight, I'm going to talk about three concepts of grace that applies to Christians. Now, I don't know if this is comprehensive, but these are the main themes of how the word grace is used in the Bible. Okay, I'm going to talk about three ways in which grace is used for believers and one way in which grace is used for the entire world. Okay, So number, I'll start with the one that's general to the whole world. This is called common grace. Everyone say common grace. grace. There is a grace of God that is common to all mankind. The Bible says... God is gracious to all that he has made. And you might be like, well, no, he's not. Some people are really suffering out there. But you have to also think about the, the rich thief who has gotten there through his wicked, crooked ways. But he is enjoying a mansion. He's enjoying a family. He's enjoying kids. You ever watch all the mafia movies? These mafia gangsters and Godfather, Goodfellas. They're living at large. And... They're raising children with family values. But on the weekend, they're whacking one of their fellow friends from a different mafia. Wicked men getting very rich, enjoying good things of God. That's called common grace. The common goodness of God. The common benevolence is a more complicated, you know, more sophisticated sounding word. But it's the same thing. It's common grace. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And so Jesus actually exhorts us, be good to all, not just your friends, not just the people who love you, love the unlovable, love your enemy. How is, how is Jesus able to exhort us to do that? It's because God does have a common grace that falls upon all. Okay, that's the first concept. You guys get that, right? Let me just sum it up real quick. All right, so that's common grace. Now, I'm going to talk about three Ways in which grace is used in the Bible that applies to Christians. Let's start with number one. Number one is a concept called saving grace. Everyone say saving grace. Saving grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We all know this verse if you grew up in church. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one can boast. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. So what is this talking about here? What grace? It's talking about saving grace. Saving grace is very, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Discriminatory. Okay, now this is where your views on predestination will come out. Okay? The uh, p- most general people who don't really study this topic or don't study them from biblical... Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Most people who don't study this from a... Uh, who don't really get into it and study it, a lot of that times they have a humanism-influenced viewpoint of God's saving grace. And it, and it goes like this. God's saving grace goes out to everybody like common grace. 
So everybody in the world has the potential to be saved. Therefore, we need to get the gospel out and preach to them because they all have the potential to be saved. Potential salvation is offered to all. That's why Jesus died for all, to make salvation available to all. Sounds very biblical, right? But when you get into the nitty-gritty design of the um, salvation plan of God, you're going to have problems with that more simple view. Okay, You're going to have problems because there are verses in the Bible that show that the saving grace of God is very discriminatory. Now, one way you can see this example is just go to the majority of your Bible, the Old Testament. The saving grace of God was not offered, this potential salvation was not offered to the majority of the nations in the whole world. At Noah's flood, there was no saving grace that was offered to everyone. No, it was just given to Noah and his family. Right? The saving grace of God was not offered to the Canaanites, the Amorites. You got you to just think real simply. This is just the fact of matter in the Old Testament, right? And so you have to understand that God had an electing plan when he chose Abraham. And he said that through your offspring, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. So eventually it will go to all ethnicities. But in the meantime, it will be very discriminatory toward Abraham's offspring. Now, the thing is, when Jesus came, we think, oh, now it's offered to everyone. But it's still discriminatory in the sense that it's offered to all people of all ethnicities, and that is the prophecy of God, that people from all tribes and nations and tongues are going to come, and they're going to bow before Jesus. But you have to understand also That within those ethnicities, God does not offer this saving grace just freely and without discrimination. He gives it to those whom he's chosen. Okay, and so that's the concept of predestination. That we we as, from a very mm, philosophically Western philosophy trained minds and humanism influenced thinking, we, we abhor the idea that God will predestine people to salvation. But it's in the concept is in the Bible, and you need to study it to have a more balanced view of what that really means. And I personally, you don't have to agree with me, do believe it's just straightforward. It is what it says it is. God does predestine. He did it back in the Old Testament. He continues to do it in the New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, it was mostly for Jews. But in the New Testament, it goes to black people, white people, Korean people, all people. It goes to all people. But it doesn't go to all people. You just catch what I said. (laughs) Anyway, second concept is called saving grace. So, you know, we don't have to argue that. But you just have to know that there is, the Bible talks about grace as a saving grace. Acts 20, 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, as the Apostle Paul. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. What's that talking about? gospel of God's saving grace. Jesus is crucified. He is raised from the dead for your sins to be forgiven. Now believe on him and you will receive the forgiveness of sin. That message of saving grace. Apostle Paul said, my life is worth nothing compared to just being able to testify to that 
and complete the work that God's put on my life. Okay, so there's first concept, saving grace. Sorry I touched the predestination thing, but you know, I always touch it. I'm sorry. (laughs) If you come to my church, you will know I touch it all the time. And the reason is because all the time I encounter people who are not really thinking things through. So I like to just like, I like to just mess you up a little bit. You know, and then have you read your Bible more. And then, then you come to your conclusions. But don't hate without first understanding what you're hating. You can't hate here without loving first. You got, you got to first learn to appreciate the richness of this doctrine. And why it has been such a controversial issue. Yet, the reformers, most of them were in agreement about this view of uh, God's grace. Saving grace. This predestination. You know that, right? All right, all right, I won't won't get into that. All right, number two. Second concept of grace that applies to Christians is empowering grace. Oh, hallelujah. Let's get into the empowering grace. This is uh, another way you could say it is enabling grace. Equipping grace. Grace that uh, enables us, equips us, empowers us to do what Jesus did when he was on the earth. Heal the sick. Preach the gospel. Do signs and wonders. Some of you may not believe in that, but... Some people do. <laughs> some of you may not, but some people do. Okay. Jesus believed in it, and he did a lot of it, and so did the apostles, and you know, so are some people today. So the Bible does talk about this. Now, there's another word, charis. Charis is the Greek word grace. Isn't that weird? How did we get the word grace from the Greek word charis? How does charis sound like grace? You know? Sometimes I don't understand how English evolved the way it did. Anyway, it does sound, it's a much more lovely name than Charis, right? Now, Charis is the Greek word for grace, but there's also a word Charismata. And this word is used for spiritual gifts. God gives Charismata graces spiritual gifts to people to enable them to do the ministry of jesus it is a spiritual power a spiritual endowment or some commentaries call it a miraculous faculty okay that's what charismata is but it's still grace it's a different type of grace it's not talking about saving grace now Now, a lot of times when reformed people talk about grace they're talking about saving grace And the reason why the emphasis is on saving grace is real simple. They're still combating the liberal theologies from the turn of the 20th century. And there are still a lot of liberal theology going on in America. But you know, there are so many more multitudes of people that really love Jesus and have a high view of scripture. Sometimes I wonder, like, why are we still fighting the battles from the turn of the 20th century? Let's get into the 21st century. Let's deal with postmodernism. Let's deal with the challenges of our day. But you know, like a lot of reformed guys, they're, they're... Talk about the concept of grace, mostly from the concept of saving grace. Now, Pentecostals, they like to talk about grace from the second type, the empowering grace. God's grace is all about having you speak in tongues, having you prophesy. And you know what? The Pentecostals are absolutely right. They're absolutely right because that's how the Bible uses the word grace. Not just charismata, but just charis is used in this way. A spiritual endowment or a miraculous faculty that's given by God. Uh, and so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's a listing of these charismata. How many are there there? Anyone know how many there are? 
nine. All right. So don't get, I don't know which one you got rid of. Let's, let's keep it at nine. Okay. There are nine fruit of the spirit. There are also nine gifts of the spirit. It's an easy way to memorize it. Okay. Now, so first Corinthians chapter 12 talks about these nine graces of God, prophecy, working miracles, the gift of faith, healings, um, tongues, interpreting tongues, gift of discernment, the gift of, uh, which one I'm missing? Yeah, there's nine of them. Now, if you go to Romans chapter 12, it's also mentioned here, the word charis in an equipping manner. It says, Romans chapter 12, verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So it's charismata kataten charin. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. It's not talking about saving grace here. It's not talking about common grace. It's talking about empowering, old school Pentecostal, shandalalala in tongues kind of grace. Okay, So it's talking about this empowering grace. Since we have these gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, who he, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, my confusion has always been with this verse. It starts off supernatural, and then it starts to lose the super and go to natural. <laughs> Doesn't it? It's like prophecy, yeah! You know? Service, uh, yeah! Teaching, yeah, yeah, it's pretty supernatural. Exhorts, hey, <laughs> he who gives, I don't want to do that. Leading, showing mercy, showing mercy. What is that? Okay, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Whether you're talking about supernatural charismata or what looks more like plain natural charismata, both are equipping graces given by God. And there are people in this room, you have the grace of giving. You don't like yourself for it. <laughs> your, your, your spouse may complain, like, why are you always trying to give, you know? We gave an offering last week, you know, but there's this grace upon you to do it because God gave you that grace. There's a grace for exhortation. A grace for showing mercy. A grace for leading. I think I have a little bit of that grace. I hope I do. And if you think I don't, please tell me. Tell me. Because a person who doesn't have the grace to lead should not be leading at a top leadership position. I think every Christian can exhibit a a level of leadership. And I think we all should because we should steward influence. But to like steward a movement of multitudes of people across different cities... Across different nations, you better have the leadership gift, the leadership grace. Second uh, Corinthians chapter eight talks about this real, real vividly. It says, "We urge Titus as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace. Also, and this is talking about." The grace of giving offerings. If you have the grace of giving offerings, please come to New Philadelphia Church. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, I'm, I'm telling you right now, some people have that gift. I've met people who have that gift. And I just be like, hey, slow down, yo. And they'll be like, no, 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 this is my privilege. I'm happy. I feel alive when I do this. When I write these checks, I feel alive. <laughs> Carry on then. <laughs> the Bible says do it with liberality. Do it with generosity, brother, then. Do it. Okay, so second is enabling and empowering grace. Third is maturing grace. Acts 20, verse 32. I commit to you, I commit you to God and to the word of his karis, the word of his grace, which can build you up. When you receive the grace of God, the maturing grace of God, it builds you up. It does not just enable you to preach a message. It does not just enable you to give an offering. It does not just enable you to lead. It also enables you to grow. The maturing grace of God. You know, in all of Paul's letters, you know what he always says to the churches? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. I mean, he's using that word grace. We don't know what he's talking about. (laughs) Frankly, we don't know what he's talking about. But he's probably talking about it in an all-encompassing way, which includes a maturing grace. You know? Because it's not in the context of doing something particular. It's just in the context of a greeting. May God's grace be upon you in abundance. Because you need to grow, brother. You need some of that maturing grace. You need some of that wisdom grace. I see some non-wisdom on you. <laughs> and we need to get that out. <clears throat> uh, 1 Corinthians 15.10, famous verse. Apostle Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's like the character I have, the person that I've become. And I've only become who I am because of the grace of God. They're talking about the saving grace? Yeah, maybe. They're talking about just the empowering grace? Maybe. But it, it makes a lot more sense also to talk about the dynamic of God's maturing grace. That fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, gentleness. <laughs> like I said, there's nine. There's nine of them. You know, that's the trouble with our, our, our church's generation. We got so many Bible translations. Our church's generation, we have so many Bible translations. When we memorize it in one one version, and then we start reading the Bible in another version, and then we switch to another version because the pastor says switch, right? We don't remember which word is what, you know, because, you know, in, in order for a Bible translating company to, to publish a new Bible, they, it has to be like 40% different than any other English translation out there, something like that. It's, it's like a percentage, a very specific percentage, or else you're, you're going to violate copyright laws, you know? Because, I mean, any knucklehead can just copy the NIV, and then just use a thesaurus for a couple words here and there. And be like, I got my own version of the Bible. You know, and so they, to prevent that, I think, they require a certain percentage. And I think that makes sense. But sometimes, sometimes I'm like, man, that's needless, man. That's, I think the King James got a good. I, I think the NIV did a good job. You know, they keep using all these. NRSV is one of the uh, translations I don't care for. All right. I mean, it's, it's, like the, it's like the academic one. But man, when I read the NRSV, I'm like, nobody talks like that. It's like somebody's got an SAT a thesaurus right next to them, and they're translating the NRSV. Anyway, it doesn't come off natural. Anyway, why did I get into that for? 
Maturing grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's talking about the grace of God and his maturing grace. And so those are three ways in which the grace of God, you can think about the grace of God over your life. The saving grace of God, the empowering grace of God, and the maturing grace of God. We need God's grace in abundance. And you know what? You have received God's grace in abundance already. And as a people of God who have been filled with God's grace, God also commands us to extend that grace to others. How does this manifest? Forgive as you've been forgiven. You know what you do when you forgive? In the English translations, you know how they define the word grace? Unmerited favor. Unearned. Unmerited favor. That's one way to think about grace, the concept of grace. Favor. You know, at my church, I talk a lot about favor because I have a lot of testimonies of God's favor. I received a lot of prophecies of God's favor over my life. And then God's fulfilled those things over my life. So it's a fun theme. You know? It's like favor, yeah. I got favor at the supermarket. I got favor on my airline tickets. Let's pray for favor for our missions trips. You know, we always talk about favor all the time. You know? But really what we're talking about is not just favor. We're talking just about the grace of God. Unmerited. You know, you shouldn't be praying about that. Y'all lazy. You know, your missions teams have been lazy. Y'all not doing your part. You know, you guys are late on deserve that. Stop praying for that. Right? No, no, no. No. You should definitely... Not cheap in the grace of God. You should pick up your act. You should get disciplined. You should start sending out your letters, sending out your thank yous. Do your part. You don't have to be ashamed of asking and praying for God's grace. God wants to, he wants to shower you with his grace. He wants to pour out his favor on you, not because of your perfect part, uh, QT record, your devotional life. Not because you're so disciplined in your devotional life. He wants to pour out favor upon you just because of who you are. The new identity you have in Christ. Like when Christ changes you, the Bible says you're a new creation. You're given a new identity. And when God sees you, he sees you as a saint. Now I know it's, it's good to emphasize how we are sinners saved by the grace of God. In order to keep an aspect of humility in our lives. And in order for us to always return to the cross and repent of our sins. Those are important things. Now in the charismatic movement, there are certain Pastors and preachers, which will remain unnamed to my leadership, I will let you all know what, who they are, that are abandoning the teaching on confession of sins. That's a dangerous thing. I don't think these ministers understand healing and deliverance in a wholeness, in a holistic way. Because you get rid of renouncing and, and, and repenting and renouncing, confessing your sins, all right, you are going to cause, cause Christians to try to deal with their sins in other ways, and it's going to create legal bondage for the enemy to harass and oppress that person. I think it's a dangerous movement that's going on. Anyway, how do I get into that? <laughs> favor. Yeah, unmerited grace. Unmerited, unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor. And as people who have received the grace of God, thank you, sister. Uh, people who have received that grace of God, God commands us to extend that grace to others. Forgive as you've been forgiven. And when you don't do that, the parable of the unmerciful servant shows us that the king is very angry when those who receive grace refuse to extend grace. It's not like, you know, you receive so much of my grace. Now it's just completely optional for you. 
to give that grace to others. I know how tough it is down there on that earth. You know, I was down there at one point. I know how tough it is. So, you, you know, you just have the option to extend grace. So if somebody does you wrong, you know, if you feel like it, you forgive them. All right. You want if somebody does something terrible to you, you can be gracious or you can just you can just chew their ear off. Is that a metaphor? I'm sorry. I've been living in Korea so long. I forgot all my American metaphors. You can. Um, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. You know, t- give them peace of your mind. You know, like. God does not say that over his church. As a people that receive grace, God commands us to extend that grace to others. Now, easier said than done. So I'll share, I'll share something real quick. All right. This is a little embarrassing, but I'm going to share it because I, I don't usually get embarrassed. Hey, it's a fun story. Yesterday, I went down to my apartment. Now, I'm paying a lot of rent in my apartment. This is a nice apartment, but I'm paying a lot of rent. Okay. And my apartments, my apartment, one of the small bedrooms is ice cold. All the other bedrooms are very warm. Even if we don't turn on the heat for like three days, four days, we're good. It's pretty warm. But that one room, we crank up the heat, goes up to 24 degrees. The moment we turn it off, an hour later, it's back to 15 degrees. It's like ice cold. So I'm like, man, this room is not insulated. Just put some insulation in there, and I think it'll, it'll help solve the issue. So I kind of complained to the front desk. They sent me down to the AS Center. The AS Center in Korea is after service. It's uh, like a warranty center. Like Americans will call it warranty. Anyway, I go down to the ASC, AS Center, and I'm like, hey, you know, can you guys insulate these walls? And uh, two Korean ajashis that are sitting at the desk, they just completely ignore me. So I'm like, all right. Are you want to be like that? You know, I'm not thinking extend grace. I'm, I'm thinking, all right. Oh, you want to play that game? I'm going to make a scene right here. All right. Now, I did not make a scene. But growing up, that's my instinct. You know, like, you ever watch like Eddie Murphy movies? You know, like he'd always like make a scene in the movies. I thought it was so cool. I thought it was like, yeah, only people who have swagger can do that, you know? Little knowing that whenever I would make a scene, it wouldn't look very like Eddie Murphy to other people. But anyway, that's like what I grew up with. So a lot of times I make scenes when I don't get my way. If I don't get like customer service that I think, a lot of Americans are like this. Don't, don't look at me like I'm the only one. All right. Especially here in Korea. Korea has a seven-day return policy, most stores. Uh, other than the Zara and the, and the more foreign retail stores that just came in. And everyone else has a seven-day return policy still. I was like, what the heck? If, I, if I'm traveling through Gangnam and I happen to buy something and, and I'm going to have seven days, I got to go all the way back out to Gangnam to return it? You know, where's the grace? Come on. <laughs> right? But anyway, so it's tough. So sometimes, you know, you, you come in an hour late or something and they're like, oh, I'm sorry. To, you know, you're over seven days. I don't know, like some, some weird stuff. Like I've, I've encountered it. So I made a few scenes. But I didn't make a scene yesterday. But I persisted. And I stayed there, and they were expecting me to leave, but I kept articulating what my problem was. Because I thought maybe I didn't articulate clearly in my Korean, because my Korean is a little broken. Young manager guy comes up to me, and he starts explaining the same thing that over and over again, that for me, does not make any sense. He's like, oh, that room doesn't get much sunlight, so we can't do anything. I'm like, it's not a sunlight issue. Because if you turn off the heat in the middle of the day, you turn it off at night, it still becomes 10 degrees cooler, you know, within 30 minutes. It's an installation issue. 
He said, well, I don't know if we can do anything about that wall. It's a tiny little wall. Just give me scotch tape or something. <laughs> can you insulate it? You know? And the guy, very calm, very calm, very calm, very calm, kept repeating the same line over, which made me more angry. I'm like, I'm not going to make a scene. I try to stay calm. And, and, then, and then I called up, like, the, the, the company representative. I got the phone number of the company representative right in front of them. I called the realtor. I was like, I need the company representative who signed the lease with me. I'm going to call that homeboy up. I'm going to tell him a thing or two. So get me his phone number. And then I thought they would be a little scared, but they were like, okay. I was like, all right. Yeah, I got the phone number. They were not willing to help me one bit. They didn't want to lift a single finger for me. So I just walked out of there. And I think I stressed the guy out a little bit because I was, I was so persistent. I walked out of there. And I was like, man, man, forget all that, man. I'm, I'm going to break the contract on this lease. I'm moving out. <laughs> forget all this. Forgive as you are forgiven. No. I'll forgive somebody of some wicked sin, but for this, no, Lord. I need my bedroom warm. So it was really hard for me to show grace. Really show, okay? Now let me, let me tell you what happened. We go to sleep. 4.30 in the morning. The intercom goes crazy. Emergency, emergency, you know? <laughs> of course, Aaron elbows me, wakes me up. Hun, 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 hun. <laughs> all right, all right, let me go take care of this. What's going on? What's going on? So I go up and I'm like, how do you turn this off? And I'm like pressing all the buttons. You know, I'm pretty technically proficient. I'm like, this should turn it off. This is not turning off. And then the other thought came to me. It was that manager. Oh, that little punk. Oh, it's on. Oh, it is on. I mean, what are the chances? That never happened for all the months we've been there. What are the chances it happens on the night on which I talk to him? And at 4.30 at all, of all times. Right in the middle of prime time sleep. That's when you, when you go into the deep sleep. You don't want nobody calling you at 4.30. That's the deep sleep zone. You don't touch my 4.30. Anyway, I go to my, I go to my fuse box and I'm like, oh, I'm going to get you. I'm going to turn this off. You know, and then, and I got it, I got, I got it to turn off, you know. And uh, I'm laying there in bed. I can't go back to sleep. And the whole time, I'm going, I'm going to kill this. I'm going to kill this punk. I have no evidence. I understand I have no evidence. But what evidence do I need? How, what are the coincidences? What are the chances that would happen? But, but, okay, you'll be proud of me here. This, this message was on my heart. So I was like, all right. This is a great opportunity for me. To show unmerited favor. Unmerited kindness. A kindness this guy does not deserve in any way whatsoever. <laughs> this is a great opportunity for me. To take the grace that I received. And extend it to others. Because if everybody takes an eye for an eye. The whole world will be blind right? 
And then what somebody said, somebody like some non-Christian said that. But, you know, take it, taking the Bible out of context, by the way. But anyway, it was, it's, it's, a, it's still a wise saying, right? You don't want to take revenge all the time. Anyway, so I prayed and I forgave him. I said, Lord, I forgive. And I, literally the word punk was on my tongue. Said, Lord, I forgive that person. I'm sure he had a stressful day and maybe I added to that stress. I don't know what happened. Doesn't justify what he did, but I forgive him. I cancel all debt that I feel like he owes me and I feel like I owe him. I just canceled it and I'm not going to hold it against him. I'm just going to extend grace to him. I'm going to be gracious. In fact, I'm sorry, Lord, that when I went in that room to the AS Center, that I was not very gracious. That I was close to throwing an Eddie Murphy tantrum. And those people, you know, that wasn't very Christ-like. They didn't see Christ when, when, they, when they saw me come in, you know? As a people who receive God's grace, God commands us to be gracious to others. Once again, easier said than done. But still, God does not shy away from that. That command he puts upon our hearts. He writes it upon our hearts. Give that grace to others. All right? So whether you receive saving grace, maturing grace, empowering grace, and all the other kinds of forms of grace on God, on your life, you got to be gracious to others. Now, I'm supposed to wrap up my message with the second part. I didn't even touch the second part of my message. But uh, let me try to just kind of sum it up. The second part is truth, the dynamic of truth. The Bible said Jesus came full of grace and truth. Now, I said in the beginning, honesty is not always the best policy. But honesty is still very important. Truth is still very important. But it's got to be in context. It's got to be tied together as it was tied together in Christ. Because the Bible says he was full of grace and truth. That's, the author there is being very specific He's taking thousands of years of Jewish history. He's summing it up in one sentence. The law came through Moses. And then he's resolving it through the gospel. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's a marriage between grace and truth. In the incarnation of Jesus. And that marriage cannot be divorced in your personal conduct. Grace and truth must always go together. What, what does truth look like? Just really quick, what does truth look like? Well, first of all, Psalm 35 verse 5, Psalm 31 verse 5 tells us that God is a God of truth. God is a God who loves truth. And the antithesis, God's enemy, is the father of what? Lies. Satan, only language she speaks is not English or Korean or Chinese. It is just deception. Even if you ever do a deliverance session with somebody who's having a full-blown exorcism, even when you try to help that person and that person, the demonic spirits are speaking to that person, you don't want to receive their information because they'll even tell you half-truths to deceive you and distract you from the real core issues that that person is dealing with, the keys that will help them get delivered. You know? Satan is the father of lies. His only language he knows is deception. But God, our God, is a God of truth. The psalmist says in Psalm 40, Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and truth 
always protect me. Your love and truth always protect me. Truth has a protecting mechanism. You walk in deception. You know, there are young people that I've helped in my early days of ministry through healing and deliverance. And there are some women that have been taken advantage of sexually. And the sad part is, certain women who believed certain lies because of that incident, they repeatedly get abused. And so I've, I've known a young college student that I was helping in my early days of ministry. And she had been sexually taken advantage of rape like multitudes of times within a period of four months after her first incident. Why, 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 do, why does that happen? It's because truth has a protecting mechanism. When you walk in God's truth, you call on him in truth, he's near you. The grace of God's going to surround you, he's going to protect you. But when you start to walk in the lies of the enemy, you, live, you walk in occultism. If you get a psychic reading, even if that psychic reading has some truths and, that are accurate to your current life, the majority of that psychic reading is deception. And when you start to walk in light of that, the protection of God starts to lift. And all kinds of strange, bizarre accidents, diseases, calamities will come upon your life. And you're wondering, Lord, I'm walking with you. I'm going to church. What's going on? That's because there's actually matters of deception that need to be rooted out. Truth has a protecting uh, nature. Uh, the Bible says, buy the truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Proverbs sixteen thirteen says, kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value a man who speaks the truth. Whether it's a pastor or a secular CEO, every man on the earth, every leader in a high position of authority, they value a man who speaks the truth. When Jesus preached throughout the Gospels, the common, the most common saying you will find in the Gospels is, in Greek, is, Amen, lego, humin. Amen, lego, humin. Truly, I say to you. Sometimes it's, Amen, Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you. The old translation is, Verily, verily. What is that? (laughs) Verily, verily. Verity, verity, Matthew. <laughs> anyway, that doesn't quite capture it for me. I love the NIV. The NIV just says it straight up. They just help interpret it a little bit. They say, I tell you the truth. You've heard it said, but I tell you the truth. You even look at a woman with us. You're committing adultery. You hate your brother in your heart. You've already committed murder. You're guilty of murder already. I tell you the truth. When Jesus spoke, he spoke truth. Now, I want to just kind of define truth. What is truth? Um, You know, it's popular in Christianity today to say truth is not information. Truth is not some factual fact. Factual fact. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm making things up. Truth is not just information. Truth is a person. His name is Jesus. He said, I am the truth. We're looking for truth. Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? And we're all asking, what is truth? But what we have to realize is truth is a person. His name is Jesus. It's powerful. It's powerful. The first time around. 
But it's, it's a little bit too simple for me. So let me kind of define what I think truth means, biblically. Okay? Now, I do believe, number one, truth is a person. His name is Jesus. <laughs> so I agree with that, okay? <laughs> this, I am the truth. You really want to know truth, you've got to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You can get fed all the doctrines of the Christian faith and that are true, but they will mean nothing to you unless you have a personal relationship with Jesus. You will never discover them as a personal truth till you have a relationship with him. But also, truth is not just Jesus, but the whole counsel of God's word is truth. The whole scripture is truth. The Bible, uh, Jesus said, John 17, 17, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. How do you get sanctified? How do you get cleansed? How do you mature and grow? And get delivered and, and, and set free from some of your bondage. How do you get sanctified? How do you get sanctified and cleansed? How do you get sanctified? Sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. That's why it's so important that as Christians we study, we read, we memorize, we study again. We, the commentaries help us. The study notes help us. But we got to devote ourselves to the word of God. Because herein lies the truth. Truth, yes, is Jesus. But truth, Jesus himself is a really a manifestation of the whole counsel of the word of God. That's why the Bible says, word became flesh. So you can't just simplify and say, Jesus is truth. I know Jesus. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. I know truth. No, 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 no. You got Jesus. Now it's time. To go deeper with Jesus. This is the truth. Get yourself some. <laughs> Another aspect of truth that I think Christians oftentimes don't talk about, but the Bible does, is character. A character of integrity is a manifestation of biblical truth. A character of integrity. Psalm 51, verse 6, one of my favorite memory verses of the Bible which I forgot 10 years ago after I memorized it in college. But such a powerful verse. It says, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. You know, when I was a 19-year-old college student, I memorized that in the NIV. That's the NIV, by the way. That's a powerful translation right there. I memorized that. I I got the chills, like the good chills. And I was like, yeah, Lord, I desire truth in the inner parts. (laughs) I don't want just truth on the appearance. I want truth in here. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. Oh, Lord, my rock. I want truth in the inner parts. That's what I'm talking about. Let's talk about integrity. Integrity is who you are when no one's looking. Do you have truth? Are you full of grace and truth? There's a lot of people who have the right answers about Jesus is the truth, the gospel. They can articulate the gospel. They can even memorize scripture passages, but they don't have the character of integrity. Isn't it amazing that some people, they're, they're these fantastic celebrity preachers. They know the Bible well. They know the gospel well. But then they, they have a fail, falling out in their, in their, in their family. They have a financial corruption. Why is that? Because they've 
eluded the aspect of truth that requires their very character to have integrity. So I believe that's an aspect of being full of grace and truth. Mark 12, 14, when the, uh, these Pharisees, they were trying to accuse Jesus, even they recognized that Jesus is a man of integrity. Mark 12, 14, they, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You're not swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And these people were about to go accuse him with a question about who should, who should we pay taxes to. But even their preface to their trap, entrapping question, they could not deny that Jesus was a man of, who was full of grace and truth. He was a man of integrity that was not swayed by men and who taught the word of God in accordance with the truth. That's powerful right there. The Bible says in, in 1 Corinthians 13, we know this one, love rejoices with the truth. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. This is tough. Love rejoices with the truth. You know what love rejoices with the truth looks like? Let me give you an example from the Bible. Galatians chapter 2. Uh, I, want, I want you to turn there for a quick, quick moment. And I'll, I'll try to close here. Y'all having fun? Y'all, 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 y'all stay with me? I, I went a little long. But, you know, I didn't, my first 15 minutes I was talking about something else. So don't count that against me. Galatians chapter 2, this is, this is what it means to have a love that rejoices with the truth. Uh, we read me, uh, look at here, verse 11 through 14. Cephas is, a, this is another name for uh, Peter. He's talking about Peter here, okay? This is Apostle Paul talking about Peter. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, these are like more distinguished people with like, you know, ornation collars and three-piece suits. I don't know what they look like, but they were very respectable men. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step... With the truth of the gospel. And that's so interesting. Apostle Paul's not here talking about just the truth of the gospel. He's talking about the truth of your conduct. Your character needs to line up with the truth of the gospel. And in this matter, it was very important. Because these Jewish ceremonial uh, food laws and things like that. The Jews, Jewish Christians were trying to demand non-Jews to get circumcised. In order for them to have a relationship with Jesus. They were trying to add physical circumcision to the gospel. All right. So it is very important that Apostle Paul did what he did. Uh, So when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And people in the room said, oh. (laughs) You You got to understand what's taking place here. Apostle Paul's like, I said it in front of them all to Peter, to his face. This pillar, this apostle, this original guy that used to hang with Jesus, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because his conduct was not in line with the truth of the gospel. You know what it means to be full of truth? It means to not let the fear of man hold you back 
from speaking up when it really counts. When it really matters. When it really matters is not just a Hollywood movie where two people get married and some guy, you know, he drives real fast to try to get to the wedding on time and then, you know, just before they say I do, he comes into the into the room and says, No, I want to marry her. No, I love you. I love you, Janice. And Janice turns around. What are you doing here? What's that movie? My Best Friend's Wedding or something like that? Did I make that up? Did I make that up? Anyway. A lot of movies have that scene, right? We think that's the, that's the moment you gotta speak up. You gotta, com- you gotta confess your love before it's too late. No, if you, if you really wanna know what it means to have a character of integrity and truth, look at what Apostle Paul did here. Having a character of integrity and truth is refusing to deny Christ before man when it really counts. When the North Korean soldier says, deny your faith, And we'll let you go. But you want to keep holding on to your little Christian faith that you picked up while you were hiding out in China? You're going to get 10 years of hard labor in the concentration camp. Character, a person who's full of truth says, I will never deny my Lord Jesus Christ. Especially in front of all these other people that don't know Christ yet. Somebody got to let them know that he's alive. I don't know if, I, if they would say it like that. <laughs> it would be a lot more scary, right? But that's, that's what it means. To have your conduct in line with the truth of the gospel. It's, it's being unafraid to confront when confrontation is necessary. Now, this does not mean for you to go and confront everybody. Hey, this is what you said to me last week. You hurt my feelings. Let me tell you what happened. No, it's just when it counts. When it's critical. When your small group member... It's about to enter that relationship that you know has been damaging already. And they get all googly-eyed when that guy comes back around. It's time for you to tell your small group member, hey, check this out. I need to speak the truth in love. I need to tell you what's really going on here. Because I don't think you quite see it. And you know what? You can reject my advice, but I know my words will go with you. So let me tell you like it is. You need to dump him. Jesus needs to stay. He needs to go. Look at him just playing Nintendo at home every day. Look at him. He ain't going nowhere. He ain't going nowhere. He ain't not the man. He's not the love of your life. Wake up, honey. Wake up, honey. You need to hear the truth. Jesus is the truth. The whole counsel of the word of God is truth. And having a character of integrity. He's talking about truth. That's why the Bible says, put on the belt buckle of truth around your waist. It's what keeps all your, your pants up. <laughs> keeps you being, from being put to shame. Is when you trust in truth, you will never be put to shame. So, so how do we do this? How do we balance this? The, the, the dynamic between grace and truth. Grace and truth, right? You know, I don't have all the answers tonight. All I know is you got to really live in that tension. Learn how to live in that tension because that is the place where you abide in Christ. Because the Bible says when Jesus came, he was full of grace and truth. And that's just as Jesus is in you, the hope of glory. You also want to learn how to be a man and woman who is full of grace and truth.
Let me read to you a quote by Graham Cook. Truth is not just about being right, but it's also about doing right. Truth given without compassion. Truth given without compassion and love may destroy someone's world. This is your opportunity to win someone's heart to a greater love in Christ. When acceptance and truth combine with loving kindness, people are made whole. You know, sometimes when we disciple people, we're trying to get people out of bad relationships. We just think honesty is the best policy. So we just tell it like it is. But then we wonder why, why is there no fruit? Why is that person never listening to me? It may not just be all their fault. It may be that you're just delivering truth without love. Delivering truth without grace. In fact, three years ago, you just got out of five abusive relationships yourself. You received that same grace. But you're refusing it to extend it to, the, to your small group member? That don't make no sense to God. You're familiar with it. Extend it to them. Be patient. Let me tell you about Marcus. <laughs> Let me tell you about Marcus. Marcus, when he was a college student, I'll close with this. <clears throat> Marcus, is a, Marcus is our pastor. Executive Director of Creativity at our church. And campus pastor at Itaewon campus. Marcus, when he was a college student just five years ago, he was an exchange student here at Yonsei. And I was discipling him for one semester. And certain weeks, I just needed to give him the truth. Because he was making some foolish decisions. He was going to places he shouldn't be going. He was doing things with his ex-girlfriend he shouldn't have been doing. So I just told it to him like a real. I just, I just, I just, I had to tell him like, I tell you real. I said, this is sin, Marcus. This is sin. This is abhorrent to God. This is an abomination. Okay, so I want to lead you through a prayer to confess your sins. And you know what? I remember Marcus, sometimes when I would like give him the truth like that, he would literally, his body would start shaking when I'm praying for him. It's the fear of God. I don't know if it's the fear of God or if you're manifesting or if you were just scared of me. <laughs> but <clears throat> he just got the truth. Sometimes he got the truth. But other times, there would be weeks where he would make the same mistake that I just thought I pulled him out of. And then the next week, he'd make the same mistake that I just pulled him out of. How many times did that happen, Marcus? That happened, that happened a lot. It happened quite frequent. Right. But, you know, the, the wonderful thing is Marcus would, would come up and he'd be honest with me about it. He'd be like, oh, you know, I don't want to really tell you this. I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I'm just going to be honest. This is what happened. And I'll just be like, ah, oh. and, you know, I have a moment of disappointment, a moment of anger. <laughs> right now, let's just be real. When your small group members do that to you. Or, or your, your natural children do that to you. You have the moment of anger. But here's the thing. God is slow to anger. His anger lasts for a moment. His favor lasts for a lifetime. That needs to be the pattern on our lives. So when your small group member messes up repeatedly in the same area, you have the moment of anger. Then you let it pass. And you show that person grace. And so there are certain times I'd be like, Lord puts it upon my heart. Just tell him it's okay. I can't tell him that, Lord. Like the, the side of me that's more like, you know, about truth. It's like, I can't tell him that. 
And you're going to think he's gonna, it's okay for him to keep doing that. What, what, what does that mean? It's okay. Hey, Christian, just tell him it's okay. Hey, Marcus, man. Hey, hey, bro, it's okay. And he just started crying. <laughs> oh, this stuff works. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. I still love you. I've been praying for you. You know? And sometimes I gave him truth. Sometimes I gave him grace. But I just try to manifest Jesus to him. This is what I was trying to do. But the cool thing is, up until the day of his flight, I was not convinced that he was completely free from his old ways. I was afraid that when he goes back to North Carolina, he's going to go back into similar messes. You know? But the amazing thing is, my words went with him. And the grace of God was poured out upon him. When they went back to North Carolina, he resolved to put an end to those patterns once for all. And he's never looked back. <laughs> I, I, wish, I wish that happened before you left, but for whatever reason, it was solidified permanently. I could tell once he was back in North Carolina. And for whatever reason, God wanted to do more. And do more through him to others. So God called them into the ministry. You know. When we learn to be full of grace and truth. It transforms people's lives. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Right? You want true repentance sometimes? It's not about just beating them, disciplining them, and just giving them truth. Sometimes it's about extending grace. You can have your moment of anger and disappointment. But let it pass. And extend that grace, just as God has done for you. And you will not be able to help but to transform the lives of people around you. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for each and every person in here. They are not strangers to your grace. They're not strangers to your truth. Father, my prayer for each and every person is just as Jesus came to us, the word became flesh and showed us the glory of the Father. Full of grace and truth that we as a people who are in Christ would also be a people that live in that balance and dynamic of grace and truth. May we be marked as a people that are full of your grace and truth, Lord. This is my prayer for the church tonight. In Jesus' name.